This episode is sponsored by Sneaker Creatures. Sneaker Creatures is your one-stop shop for all of your sneaker needs, and man, do they have a big selection of shoes. If you're looking for Nikes or Jordans, those are super hot right now, and they have them at such incredible prices. If you're looking to gift Nikes or Jordans this year, then really, really check out SneakerCreatures.com. You could use my promo code NickLugo, I repeat, N-I-C-K-L-U-G-O at checkout and get a 10% discount on your purchase. Any shoe in the store, you will get a discount. Check it out, SneakerCreatures.com. I repeat, SneakerCreatures.com. Check out the link in the description below. It will be there. And now, on with the show. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Nick Lugo Show. And boy, do I have one in store for you today. We have Dr. Jim Fallon, who is, well, he's known as a borderline pro-social psychopath, which, well, take with that what you will. And, well, he's a great guy. He's done um, incredible things, and he's really changed the lives of many, many people. He's been an, an anatomy and neuroscience professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine for 35 years. He's had a TED Talk that received over 3 million views, and, well, he has pretty much discovered the psychopathic brain. He's done a lot of work on that, and because of that, because of his crazy story, he's been able to do incredible work for the Pentagon, as well as the Secretary of State, as well as the Pope, as well as the criminal mind and Hollywood um, shows that you think to try to determine what exactly the perfect psychopath looks like on a TV show. So he pretty much has done it all. He pretty much does everything. And well, he's the guy that you want to hear about when you talk about psychopaths. He's here to tell you about pretty much why psychopaths are not as bad as you think and why him being a pro-social psychopath is not really the worst thing ever. And well, how it's made him a great professor and a great person. So I encourage you to check out the sponsors in the description below, as well as just, you know, enjoy this episode. This is going to be a really great episode, and I really hope you enjoy this episode with Jim Fallon. You realize, you know, your life is pretty incredible. Like, your life is really, really crazy. So I guess we'll just start off. Just tell people about your life. How has your life been so much different than everyone else's? And why is your story so crazy? Well, to me, it's not crazy. It's just, you know, you're in your own skin and in your own head. So it seems everything seems sort of normal and regular. Interesting. I uh, got, yeah, I mean, Nick, I still have my Teamsters card. Okay. I, I owe about 45,000 in, in, in back uh, taxes, if you will. But <laughs> I, you know, I grew up doing bar, you know, being a bartender and, and being a laborer and, uh, and doing every, everything a regular guy would do, you know, and I was very active in sports, a lot of contact sports and, and constantly busy and, you know, in the band and student government, I was one of those pains in the asses. And, uh, and that was for a reason, as it turns out, it wasn't just being interested in a lot of things, but uh, my parents had a lot to do with directing that. As I found out right before my mother died a couple, two years ago, she was, she, she died right before her 102nd birthday. Wow. She started opening up about my childhood and everything. It was in, in, in very interesting talking to her. So, you know, uh, the, the last years with her were unbelievable. You know, wow. My father lived a, a long time too, but she really opened up and the, all the filters were gone. <laughs> <So> <laughs> let it rip. Well, and you so had a tremendous amount of like, you know, psychopathy when you were younger, right? You had OCD, you had um, just 
you know, you were hyperactive and you had this really, really strong, like moral belief system to, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that, it, you know, when I was, and I put it in, in, in my book on psychopathy that, you know, when I was probably 14 or something like that, 15, I was named New York state Catholic boy of the year. Hmm. Uh, that's how obnoxiously holy I was, but it turns out I, I had obsessive compulsive disorder uh, clinically, you know, from the time I was about eight or nine and, and it slowly, it's never gone completely away, but it really, really subsided it when I was about 18 or 19, but all through my early teens, before my teens and early teens and mid teens, I really had a type of OCD called, uh, you know, it's hyper religiosity. And so I had a real thing about being perfect it wasn't so much spiritual at all or religious. It was an obsession with perfection. And so I was brought up Catholic. And when I would, when I would go to confession, the priest would always say, Jim, these are not sins. Of course, they knew who we were. It was supposed to be secret, right? But they know, they know where the kids were. Yeah. And, uh, and I used to, my sins, my mortal sins, going to hell, mortal sins were, I didn't pay enough touch time this past week to the right side of my universe. I spent too much time on the left side. <laughs> That's very time. OCD. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, it was all this kind of thing. So I never had any regular sins. You say, I had sins against the symmetry of the universe. Now, this is uh, that's how not, that's how kind of crazy I was, but I knew they were crazy. It's not like I had OCD PD. I didn't have obsessive compulsive personality disorder. The personality disorder on any disorder means that you think it's okay. So there are people who think these crazy thoughts and compulsions are okay. It's just like psychopaths think their behavior is okay. Whereas a sociopath part of it, they know what they're doing is really morally wrong. And so, but for the OCD, um, you know, and my mother used to tell me, she says, I, I'd watch you walk to school or watch walk to the bus and you would have like 50 yards of clean lawns and, and street, and, you know, uh, as you walk, you pick up everything. And I would, I was like a vacuum cleaner to keep everything clean and neat. And wow. so, um, but I, you know, as this, the kind of the, the crazy part of it went away slowly, not completely, but enough, it wasn't bothering me. Uh, okay. As that went away, uh, I've been able to use the, the, the urge for completion and to get things done to advantage of my job. So it's really helped me in my career uh, because I, I get things done and it's part of it, the OCD is you get something on your plate, you write it down, you get it done. You have to yeah. get it done, no matter how mine is. So I, I have the, all these books of, you know, notes on day to day as a professor, everything I did, everything, all the calls, everything written out on a ledger and when check it off. So that make sure that I got everything done. I think it really helped me in success of my career. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, um, for people, yes. Yeah, so you uh, are a, what is it called? A functioning psychopath, a social. Well, I'm not, you know, a after all the analyses were, you know, I've had done, you know, with psychoanalysis and psychiatric analysis, mm -hmm. not just the biological markers, because I have all the genetics of a real, you know, somebody with these traits of, psychopathy full on and also the brain imaging patterns my connectomes by in my brain are very psychopathic looking so the biology is there and uh and i also have traits but i i when it comes down to it i'm not a categorical psychopath 
you know, I don't quite get there. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm a, so I'm not a categorical clinical psychopath, but I am a, you know, borderline because I have enough traits to give me a, some big numbers uh, in the, you know, the different psychopathy tests. Uh, but I don't have a lot of the antisocial ones. You know what I mean? I have a lot of the pro-social ones. So in that way, I'm what you call a pro-social borderline psychopath. Interesting. And those pro-social ones, are the, they don't mean you're nice and social. It means that you can you have behaviors that allow you to navigate society without people thinking there's anything wrong with you. So explain, and, what's well, that kind of like? Yeah, like how could you, like, what is it like being pro-social but also being a psychopath? How do those two kind of come together? Well, the, the psychopath part, even though one of the psychiatrists in the summary said, this, this guy, me, uh, has all the thoughts and urges and dreams and uh, of a full-blown psychopath, and he simply doesn't act them out. So I'm able to suppress them. And he could never figure out why the other psychiatrists, I know they said it's very unusual to be able to suppress these urges, which are quite psychopathic. And But this is in your head, right? In my head. So I don't think my urges and thoughts and everything were, were anything different than anybody else. What is, what is there to compare it to? If you don't have the behaviors, there's nothing to compare it to, really. But the drives are there. And if you look at my scans, I have the activity on the top of my cortex, what's called the dorsal stream. Um, which has to do with sort of logical uh, functioning, a rational brain and planning and everything is hyperactive. It's extremely active. So perhaps that part of the brain is able to inhibit all these other drives that are in the ventral or bottom part of the, uh, the brain. And that might be one explanation, but, you know, it's, you know, I also have a, a very mild bipolar but I, it's, and so it's not a big deal, right? But mostly what I have is I don't have depression. I have hypomania. You know, mania is a real, is a, is, is, a, is a psychopathology yeah. uh, because it's a, you know, you, it's a psychiatric break. You get psychotic and with mania, that that's the person who everything's going along fine. All of a sudden they get really spontaneously hyperactive. They fly to Vegas, buy 20 cars, you know, all this really destructive behaviors. And those marriages don't last long. Whereas hypomania is you'll notice when I'm talking, unless you stop, I'm going to keep rambling. And so there's this sort of pressure of speech, but it feels good. So when I'm talking, it feels good. And when I'm doing things and acting in the world, it feels uh, very active and fulfilling and pleasurable. So I'm actually getting a buzz out of it. And that's hypomania. And nobody wants to treat hypomania because it feels so good. Yeah. Yeah. Part of this is it feels very good. Everybody around me seems to be depressed. <laughs> you know, it's like, and and so that's what it, what it feels like with my specific combination of traits, with especially with this hypomania and in, in the drive to manipulate people. I do have that. And see, to me, I never thought it was anything except bring him along for a fun ride, you know, whatever it is. Well, interesting. So explain to me now your brain is yes, like it, it has some different characteristics, but what are the commonalities? Obviously you spend all your time doing this. What are the commonalities between all of the psychopaths and all of the serial killers that sort of yeah. like make them uh, diagnosable? Yeah. The, the core traits, the really important core traits are, you know, one is this manipulativeness. You know, all psychopaths have this sort of drive to manipulate other people in one way or another. And it's a drive, and they're kind of always on, always on the make, if you will, 
or they're planning to be on the make. You know, they have targeted people, uh, but some are spontaneously that way. Uh, and it, but part of that is that that's not bad in itself because you can use that as a salesman. You can use that as a teacher, yep. as a cleric, as a, all sorts of things where you really, inter, you know, you're really getting into people's heads. Uh, but a, a normal good person will use that knowledge, the knowledge of what people are feeling, their emotions. This is the psychopaths have it really well. They can read people's emotions and they use it against them. Whereas if you have the same trait and you're a normal person, oftentimes you're using it to try to help people. You know, I know you're hurting. I'm not crying with you. I'm not happy with you. I don't have emotional empathy, but I, I understand your problem. And I'll, I'll, what do you need? Do you have money? Do you need a job? Do you need to work out something? You need a connection, you know, you know, and so uh, that way psychopaths, because they have this cognitive empathy can very attractive that way because they, they can seem to be very helpful. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, you brought up a really good stat before, which was in one of your podcasts, which was the fact that psychopaths are more likely to donate to charities as opposed to just normal people. And it seems like the reason why is because they're a lot more level-headed, right? Because they don't have this activation in their limbic part of the brain, they don't have this activation in their emotional part of the brain, and they're mostly just cognitive, that they're able to say, okay, you know what? Not only do I feel this emotion, I'm going to also plan to be able to sort of help them. And it seems like there's some sort of benefit to being a psychopath in that way. Yeah. And, and so there are real psychopaths who do good works. And they don't, and people assume they do good works to get near the children or to get near, you know, getting somebody. And they actually are just doing good works and they're able to firewall this. So there are many psychopaths have like normal lives and then they have these dark things, right? Usually at night and the weekends and other, and, yeah. but they can have these normal lives with their uh, involved in a lot of charity and it's honest. It's a drive. If you, you know, if you look at me, even though I have psychopathic traits, I'm involved in charities all the time and it's not to do anything. A lot of times it's anonymous giving or anonymous helping. So it's not for attention, I don't, you know, and it's not for to get close to them, to get anything. They just like, oh, I understand the problem. I can help you. Maybe since I can help people in a cool, sort of a cool way, a cold headed, you know, uh, rational way, yeah. that I like it because it makes me feel good about myself. I don't know. I mean, that's possible. It doesn't seem that way to me, but I'm sure it's very possible that would be at another level. Yeah, someone like me. But nonetheless, I'm involved in many more uh, charitable works and helping people than other people are. Well, that's the thing, you know, so when I like to think about it, you explained really, really beautifully in your lectures, which was the fact that the people that we think are like some of the greatest people, you know, FDR, JFK, uh, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, a lot of these people, Teddy Roosevelt, have psychopathic tendencies. And it really really is kind of scary. And also, you know, one of the people in your genetic bloodline is Ezra Cornell, the person who founded Cornell. And all of these people have, were either psychopaths or had psychopathic tendencies. So sort of explain, yeah, this sort of dichotomy between the highly exceptional, but then also the, you know, Ted Bundy's of the world, let's say. The, um, In, in terms of leaders, you know, probably the, the, the president with the most true psychopathic uh, tendencies and traits would be Bill Clinton, I think, by far. You know, when the study was done on U.S. presidents, uh, JFK was way up there. Um, uh, FDR, way up there. Teddy Roosevelt, way up there. 
And a lot of the ones that are very attractive, people are very, you know, I love him. You know, he's just so attractive and so wonderful. Like Billy, Bill Clinton, he's just, he's so cool and everything. Well, that all psychopaths, but, you know, really a lot of them are, are very cool and they're very attractive and I want to be with him. You know, I want to vote for him. I, he's, I want him to lead us and lead me. And, and so a lot of this has to do with regular people voting for these people and finding it attractive. And so it's really the society's, a large uh, part of the society's love affair with psychopathic traits, because they like powerful people. So the social dominance, it's like the cool guy in school, right? Hey, baby, how's it going? Without being too smarmy. So it's, it's, it's nice enough. So it's not somebody who, it seems on the make all the time, but they have a lot of, show a lot of talent and they know how to manipulate people. And these are popular people. And, and, and so we vote for them. Uh, in some places, which have had hundreds of years of tyranny, if you look at Russia, 300 years of czarist police and, and czars and tyranny. Well, you know, there, there could be, because of all these generations lopped onto each other, epigenetic changes in the populace's expectations and needs. So they'll actually vote for a strongman, for a tyrant. It's, it's kind of baked into their epigenetics, Okay. Uh, And so uh, it's part of this is we vote for it. And, you know, somebody will say, well, I don't want to have a financial uh, partner who is a a thief. But if you're going to steal, you're going to steal from me. Right. Just don't, you know, people are very (laughs) hypocritical. Well, it was really cool. So you actually like this blew my mind. So you predicted Donald Trump winning the election way before any of it sort of went down. And. Well, I sort of asked the question, right? Why do you think we're so attracted to these people? And is it really built into our genetics? The fact that we crave these leaders that have these rational, level-headed and um, like dispositions and also are have this character trait of fearless dominance. Yeah. From that, you know, what led to that, as I, I was invited to give two talks at the uh, Georgetown University School of Ethics. So I gave a couple of talks and somebody in the audience both times and they were, they, they had a... Uh, an international finance firm. And they said, I want you to come and talk to our annual meeting at our, you know, our board meeting. And next one will be in uh, Aspen. So I went and gave a talk and there was the board meeting and the, the, uh, the chairman of the board was a U.S. Senator, Democratic Senator, who was the chairman of the board. And I gave this talk and I asked him, what do you want me to talk about? So, well, how about the sort of personality traits and the genetics of leadership and in politics, what it means. So I went through and studied for a couple of months uh, the, the behavioral traits and person, personality traits of all of the, uh, the candidates at that time. And this was, you know, for the uh, 2016 election. So it was an early in the summer 2016 before the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump uh, showdown. And I looked through this and, and Donald Trump at that time was down like 25 points or something. But I went there and I tried to analyze it just independently of that. And um, it, it, it looked through it and I compared their profiles to the profiles of the average personality profiles of Americans, especially voters, adult voters. So if you look at those, there are people who have personality traits and, you know, there are a pretty good big five personality tools. Also, you can use something like the Myers-Briggs, you know, which is more accessible. But if you look at that, many people vote emotionally and they're wired with two kinds of empathy. 
there's two kinds of uh, overall four kinds, but two major kinds. One has to do with what I mentioned, the emotional empathy uh, versus the cognitive empathy. But there's another one, which is in-group and out-group. The in-group are those people who will vote for somebody who will put money in their pocket, something for their family. This candidate will get me $500 more a year. Uh, I'm going to vote for him. Uh, this uh, this person is going to help my little business. I'm going to vote for him. It has nothing to do with their the morality, the ethics, and all principles of Americana and everything. It's like, what can he get me and my family? A lot of people are wired that way genetically. There's a whole series of genes that are involved with in-group, uh, very close to the vest empathy. And then there's out-group. And the out-group is like you're interested in the nation or the world. You know, there are some honest Marxists who, uh, and Greens who actually not for political reasons per se, but want to save the world. Yeah. And a lot of them are, of course, they are not married. They don't have kids. So they don't even get that far. They don't, there's no conflict. There's a lot of Marxists don't even have children or, or very few. And so there, there's no conflict of self and, you know, family versus outgroup. And so, and if you look at that, there's a certain percentage of each of these that you put on distribution. When I match these distributions of different kinds of empathy and personality types, uh, I came to the conclusion, I said, Jesus, I said, Trump's going to get elected. And I and I came to the conclusion, they gave him the reasons why this board meeting of all these international finance people and this U.S. senator. And they're going, what, you got to be kidding me. It's crazy. <laughs> I said, I, it's, I'm just doing analysis. And I, and, and, and in fact, I, you know, I didn't vote for Trump either time, but nonetheless, you just look at it, you know, it's people, you, you Whenever you hear some scientist or journalist say, do you have passion for it? I run the other direction. Passion is the enemy of truth, right? And he says, well, I got into this because I'm passionate about it. That's when you know it's bullshit. Bullshit's coming because they have to have some personal emotional reason to be interested in this thing, right? And, and, and so what they say, you can a lot of times really discount it. So passion for a scientist or a journalist is the enemy of truth. So so I said, look at him, you know, just this is what I, you know, studied and found here. Well, it turns out that Trump won. And this senator called me up. He said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and uh, so we became pals. But nonetheless, um, you can, you know, give a shot on this because people always say, oh, I hate psychopaths or I hate bad, I hate bad boys. You know, and, you know, you're you're in college and, and, and there's always a group of gals who love to date bad boys. Yeah. And they'll say, I don't know, I don't, but they go for it. I mean, it's just, you know, you go to any prison and the people on death row and there's always you see these women out there holding candles. They have candlelight vigils. Uh, and these are almost all uh, women who were, were abused. Right. That yeah. around in front of prisons and they're trying, I guess, trying to medicate, self-medicate and somehow deal with the abuse they went through and the bad relationships and the, you know, the traumas. Uh, but people will magically go toward exactly what they say they hate. And, yeah. uh, and, and so but if you get if you try to get through that and understand it, and fold it into a, a, you know, a heat map for election, you can do pretty well. So try to explain exactly what benefit these people offer, right? So clearly it's built into our genes that we like these people, right? Yeah. We like these psychopaths. Uh, another good stat is that 21% of all, I think, CEOs are have psychopathic tendencies. 
And why is it that these people become hyper successful? What do we like about them specifically? And then also, you know, why is it that they rise to the top? Well, you know, in terms of the psychopathy for CEOs, that turns out to be for small startup companies. Okay. Uh, the large CEO, large company CEOs are usually uh, have don't have those traits. They have leadership traits, but they they're not really psychopaths. And that this is a a, a miss. This is kind of uh, a a lie. Okay. So, so people take the the, the stat that twenty percent of CEOs, but what they don't tell you is that the CEOs of startup companies. You know, mm-hmm. like the Wolf of Wall Street, for example, these startup companies, small finance companies, where you do find, you know, the quick buck psychopath. But the people who say this want you to hate capitalists, right? So they want you to hate CEOs of big corporations, but it turns out to be not a true stat statistic. And okay. so you expanding it until it becomes a lie, which it, 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 it functionally is, because the intention of it is for you to hate capitalists and for you to hate CEOs and, you know, large in businesses. And in large businesses, and but you end up, it's a stat based on something quite different. And so, but, you know, in terms of the advantages, you know, why there's this pan-cultural uh, consistency all around the world. And probably since, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, it's always about one, one and a half percent of people are psychopaths in any particular society. And it's not based on any race or ethnicity or anything. And uh, and it seems to be very stable. Why would you take something seemingly so pernicious, and and why would that be of any help? Well, it you know if you look at it like a biologist would look at it, uh, you know those traits which are good for the species are not good for the individual necessarily, and certainly not for the family, and vice versa. And for example, in order for us to exist as a very vibrant and robust species. There's a lot of intermarrying and interbreeding. I don't know if a lot of us marrying. Interbreeding of all sorts of types of people. And so you're on one side of the mountain and who's the one that wants to climb the mountain, spend the energy to climb the mountain, go over and have sex with the entire, you know, all, all the teenagers and, the, and these people you don't know uh, and, and rape them, for example. Uh, and, and who spends that energy? Well, psychopaths would. That's a tremendous fun, right, for them, and uh, and and that helps the species. So here's all this rape and pillaging going on, which spreads our genes and intermixes our genes, which is creates a very robust species. So we have to thank, in that sense, psychopaths and bad weather for um, and, and climate change for our robustness. And uh, but it's terrible for individuals and certainly for families and and, and clans that you got somebody in there going, causing all this trouble. And so, so you say, what is it good for? Well, is it good for the species or good for the families and plants? And, and you get a different answer. So the answer is they are very necessary. Psychopaths are necessary. If you look at it in that way, now you yeah. don't want to run into a full-blown violent psychopath. I mean, just awful and dangerous. But then so what I'm about, not, I'm not defending psychopath, full-blown psychopaths. I am defending psychopathic traits that are not clinical psychopaths. That mm. is people who have this, this what's called fearless dominance. That's very attractive. That's, you know, and a lot of women love that he's dominant. He's a leader. Look at that. He's, that's a horny thing. Right. <laughs> and so, 
Well, that kind of makes sense. So you think about it and you ask the question. So yes, maybe the full-blown psychopaths, the Ted Bundy's of the world, those are the people. And yes, yes, those successful, we'll say Genghis Khan's, right? Those people, yes, they're going to go too far. But what about the people that lie in the middle, right? You said Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, all of these people had these not only psychopathic traits, but at the same time, they helped the species. They did things that made the world a lot better. So- yeah, I, uh, for me, I was asked to do for the Human Rights Foundation in the Oslo Freedom Forum, uh, talking about some years ago and, and since then about the brains and minds of dictators. So I spent some years analyzing 3,000, 4,000 years of dictators and got all the information I could about their lives and everything and their traits and also modern dictators, because I know people, I work in think tanks where they know these people like Putin, they know these people like Assad, et cetera. And to get really in-depth analysis of their young lives and their real traits and their fears and everything. And in and so in, in doing that, uh, there were very consistent traits of these dictators and tyrants with psychopaths. They almost all of them, uh, except Pol Pot, was the only one out of hundreds. But, uh, but Pol Pot denied ever having a bad childhood, right? So we don't know for sure, but that was, they all, they all have between birth and, and two or three years old, they're all abandoned, had, were abused, every one of them. Uh, but they also, in their families, they had this, some extreme traits. So they may have had genetics, but we don't have the genetics of these people. And, and so these are people that have, the, you know, if they have these pro-social traits as psychopaths, they have leadership and they uh, psychopaths have good insight too. They're not clouded by emotion, right? A lot of people, their judgment is clouded by emotion and psychopaths, they don't, they're not clouded by this. So they get right to the nub of it. And so they almost eerily accurate and they, they gamble well too. So they tend to make the correct choices under pressure because in fact, the pressure doesn't get to them. Mm. And so they seem to be amazingly uh, uh, resistant uh, to being ambushed. You know, we we know, I've, I work with the military, you know that the people, the last people to, to get shot or to be ambushed in small groups, for example, it turns out the number one protected group were LA gang leaders. They almost never got killed because they could smell a rat coming, right? And, mm-hmm. and so they suppress emotion. So everything's quite clear rationally to them. And so this is a good thing to have in a leader. You don't want a leader who's touchy-feely, well, I like him and I'm upset and everything. Hey, you don't want that. You want some cold, calculated person. You don't want a monster, but you want somebody with the trait of being able to read emotions, but not being whose judgment isn't swayed by emotion. You don't right. want your neurosurgeon to break down crying because they're upset with your brain tumor that they're scooping out. You don't, you know, you don't want it in leaders. So you want this cold, calculated thing. Well, that cold, calculated thing is a part of the, the psychopathic. Uh, Got it. So, so explain to me now. So for the dictators, right? It seems like for the goal of the dictators, therefore, right? This is how many dictators uh, did you have in your study? Well, you, you see in back of me, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five different <laughs> filled bookshelves. Those are all dictators. Wow. Study, so, and some are multiple. So, you know, the hundreds. Well, it seems like the goal of these dictators is to show off their level-headedness, right? So show off their leadership and show off that they are going to be level-headed. 
And one of the things that sort of correlates with that, and I want to see if you if, if you agree or disagree, is times of crisis. So maybe the reason why they are trying to, you know, let's say be level-headed and show off their level-headedness is because they're trying to show off that during a time of crisis, like a war, which is what FDR did or what Hitler did or what even Trump did, right? With trying to try to sort of manufacture some sort of war or manufacture some sort of, let's say, crisis. By doing this, this allows them to keep their power because therefore they could say, okay, there's a crisis. You need a level-headed leader and therefore you should trust me. Uh, Nick, I don't think they make it up. They're naturally this way. Okay. They're naturally this way. They're, you know, and, you, and, and smart people won't be fooled by it. There's a very, all those people very naturally were like that. They didn't have to create a problem. I mean, you know, Stalin didn't want to get attacked by Hitler. He didn't want to have his self destroyed at all. He was he was Stalin's psychopath. Hitler not so much. He was a sociopath, but he knew you know he didn't have all the traits of a psychopath. But people uh, who are are can make decisions under fire. They're not so much doing it because look at I'm going to create this 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 problem, uh, so I can prove that I'm worthy of being a you know a leader and a dictator. No, they just eat it up, and so it's naturally there. Mm. Uh, they're just that way. Interesting. So they try to, well, is that part of their pitch, right? Are they trying to sort of accentuate and create a narrative? They're just naturally that way. They're naturally that way. Yeah. And they've got chutzpah, you know, they've got that presence, that dominance. It's natural. They don't, do not think I got to try this. Somebody like Hitler had to try to do it. He wasn't naturally that way. He had actors helping him and everything, but people who are natural leaders, uh, you, you know, who are, who have psychopathic traits, uh, it comes naturally to them. They're not making anything up, wow. but they can play off it. They can riff off it because they know people are impressed by it. So they can riff off it a little bit, but there's no stress and they don't have tells that they're under any sort of stress at all. Cause they're not. Okay. So very cool customers. And that's who you want as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. That's really scary. So it's not like I want a psychopath, but I want that trait, you know, and, but if you add enough traits together, you then get into a clinical uh, psychopath, but that's why, you know, leaders will say, well, they have these uh, these psychopathic traits, but they're not full-blown psychopaths at all. Uh, so anyway, it's, but you're still, people are attracted to the trait. They don't think to themselves, oh God, I think I'm going to fall in love with a psychopath. Or I think he's like, a, I'm going to vote for him because he's a psychopath. No, but they're voting for the traits that they see that are attracted to them uh, on an emotional level too. Got but it. also on a cognitive level, you know, there's somebody who is going to give us a prosperous country and and who's going to scare away bad guys? And we won't have any wars. So I, I you know, see the way you said it, you're thinking like a normal person. Hmm. <laughs> you're saying, well, they they must be doing this because they're trying to prove to people that they're doing it, as opposed to they're completely naturally there, and therefore they tend to get asked to be leaders, and it goes on and on until they get older. With 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 me, I was always asked to be leadership starting when I was in fourth grade. Whenever there's a leadership role all through high school, college, and I wouldn't ask for it. They'd always say, could you, could you be the leader? Could you be the head of the faculty? Could you be the head of this, the head of this uh, committee, this fundraising? I never asked for those things, never. And, and neither do neither do, do those guys and gals that have it. They're asked to do this stuff because people can see the traits as being honest. They're honest traits. Interesting. So how can we sort of determine the difference between these people, right? The people that are full-blown psychopaths or the people that are just have psychopathic traits. Yeah. I mean, this is, 
there are tells that many psychopaths have, uh, not all. So it's not, it's not a sure thing. You know, when you, you talk to psychopaths, you, it, but you have to talk to them long enough. You have to talk to them for some, some hours and you have to, it's always good if you have a few drinks in them, loosen up a little bit. And, and uh, because straight away over a period of hour, you're not going to be able to tell, especially it's somebody who's, you know, is really uh, already in a leadership role where they've been able to con people many times, very smart people. And so, but, you know, but the average person, like in an office or something, they will, you know, a psychopath, an active, real full-blown psychopath will start grooming people in the office. Maybe a guy will be looking at four women over the period of weeks and months and years, grooming them to get to their heads, to get in their pants, to get their mind. I don't say, is there any pathological about trying to have sex with somebody? No, but planning it and, and, and having plans for four different women and, and putting them in situations and reading their mind and try to get to what's bothering him. Aha, she hates her father. I can riff off of that. See. Mm. Oh, she hates, the, she hates like uh, country club guys. So I, I got to be like a regular guy, working guy, not a country club guy. And, and so, uh, and so that sort of planning is, is then you're getting to more psychopathy. And then when you're actually going to do something that is uh, very bad for them. Okay. And so with those people that you'd find, they start, talking to you in a way after a while that you, you feel funny around them. Most people can sense this. They get a little too close to you. They start talking about their organ systems too much, right? Their they, organ systems. Yeah. They talk about their viscera, their guts, their okay. sex organs, their, you know, their guts. Their, they just tend to get very unnervingly frank about a gastrointestinal genitourinary organ system, not all of them, but they start talking away. They gives you a little bit of the creeps. Like, why is this sort of purient uh, talk? Cause he's pro pro probing and prodding you for your reactions to each of these. So as you get more and more, they're going to probe more and more deeply to evoke emotional responses, to see where your triggers are and your weaknesses are. So they'll start doing that and they get too close to you too. They'll start, uh, and, the, and the way they'll talk about causality of events, causality of behavioral events. It's like, you know, a typical thing is that when a, when a psychopath kills somebody with a gun, they separate themselves out. See, it was the gun, the bullet, and the gun killed the person and the bullet came out of this gun and the gun was there and the gun that it that all did that. So this externalization and depersonalization of blame, they don't actually connect themselves that they're the one that pulled the trigger. And, mm. and, they're, and they're like this for many of the things that they do with people. It's like, well, you want to go out with me, but I heard you did something to my girlfriend. No, no. And they'll externalize blame all the time to something that happened uh, that is caused by that person or by some event not tied to them. And that sort of externalization of blame for the simplest to more complicated things, even to the point of a murder uh, or a rape, uh, will they'll talk like that. Not not in, not initially, right? They, they groom you. Okay, so explain sort of how this happens, right? So you look at a psychopath, and the reason why is because they don't really have a solid connection with the emotional part of their brain, right? So explain sort of, yeah, like the brain of a psychopath and what the difference is between, yeah, like their limbic system, their emotional systems, and their cognitive systems and how that brain sort of works. 
Well, the simplest way to put it is the top half of the brain is working fine. and The bottom half of the brain is not working so fine. Mm. Uh, you know, the base of the brain, the, uh, the cortical limbic and limbic system, uh, which starts, you can start anywhere. It's a, it makes a big circle. The cortical limbic system makes a big circle. And so if you start with uh, the piece of the frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex above your eyes, above your orbits, that's called orbital cortex. And then you continue on toward the midline of your brain. And that connects with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And then that connects with this big C-shaped structure called the cingular cortex. And that continues into your temporal lobe, which is right under your, where your temple is inside of your head. And it goes into the hippocampal area. And then it continues on to the amygdala. And then it completes this big C-shaped structure in your prefrontal uh, cortex, all the way your parietal and then your temporal lobe. Uh, then it connects back up with the frontal cortex through the anterior insula, which is one of the center areas for determining uh, empathy, the type of empathy you have, but also the sense of your guts, you know, gut feelings, et cetera. That's, that's an anterior insula type of thing. So yeah. this is the area of the brain uh, called, the, called the limbic system. It's the, I just mentioned the cortico-limbic part, the cortical part. There are subcortical areas connected with these that are part of the limbic system. And then um, in those areas of the brain in psychopaths are, are strangely turned off when they should be on. So in normal people, if you sit somebody down in a brain scanner, a functional brain scanner, uh, for, for an fMRI or you know for a pet scan for example and you show them pictures of awful things school buses blowing up people having their you know uh, their necks cut open or really violent things and very things that make the average person recoil uh, then that, those areas turn on there's a, in certain specific areas that turn on in normal people that don't turn on at all. It's, you know, you can show these things to a psychopath. Well, the worst pictures and worst movies imaginable that cause recoil and not just disgust, but real uh, uh, angst and fear, like murder and, you know, babies and puppy dogs. Uh, that causes a deep emotional response. Uh, but if you show it to a psychopath, it's like showing them a rose or an old Chevy. It doesn't matter, you know, it's like there's no response. So it's the inappropriate, it's a lack of response to these normally emotionally very rich negative emotion triggers. And that's how you can see it in a brain scan. Well, those are, they don't turn on in an appropriate way in a wow. psychopath. So they don't get the message to begin with. So to them, that's, those things are not immoral. They don't understand morality. What are you talking about? They don't understand, they, they have their own morality, but it's not yours. And so you'd say, well, that you kill that person. Well, yeah, but it's not really, it's like a parking, parking ticket to them, you know? Yeah. I guess it's not so great and everything, but it's not too bad. Probably, probably, you know, deserved it. And, you know, I, so they will, if you think like a normal person, you're not going to get it with this the whole psychopath thing because they don't, they think it's like really like a parking ticket. So, um, but so it never it, registers. It never registers to begin with. So in that way, they're honest about it. They're not trying to be that way. They're they. It's just never developed early on in their life. So so explain to me. Sort of. Does that mean that they don't? Is it valid to say that they don't feel emotion, or is that they don't feel this sort of negative, immoral, disgust mo emotion? Well, they they feel emotion. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to die. Mm -hmm. 
you know, they will have that and they can uh, have some emotional connection to things. Okay. That's so, uh, they can have a, but it's not like any normal person would around the world would think, you know, it's not a normal sort of a connection or emotional response, but they, they do have fears, but not the, not the same fears that many people would have. Uh, some would be the same. Uh, they will enjoy having a good meal and enjoy sex, you know, sometimes pretty twisted, but so there are emotions there, but they're not normal and they're in the wrong context. Okay. So can psychopaths feel happiness, like long-term happiness or are they sort of yeah. bound to a miserable yeah. life? Yeah, they would, they, you know, you know, part of the definition of these personality disorders, especially what are called cluster B personality disorders, about 10 of them, like psychopathy, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder. Um, and the, and, and part of it is it's supposed to make your life miserable, but there are a fair number of psychopaths. It makes your life inconvenient, but not necessarily unhappy. Mm, okay. See, it's, unha- it's inconvenient. Some of these things to them. But to say unhappiness is is putting happiness in some sort of uh, in, in in a light that is that a normal person would feel, and they it, that's not there. But that doesn't mean they don't have emotion and they don't have happiness. Okay, makes sense. So next question is just the fact that well, it seems like we could sort of develop these um, these psychopathic personality traits. One of the, one of my mentors or mentors, you know, I watch him online goes by the name of Jordan Peterson. And he basically says all the time that you should turn yourself into a monster. You should turn yourself into something like a psychopath. And the reason why is because then you start to understand the world a little bit better, right? Only a psychopath understands another psychopath. And of course you shouldn't become a full-blown psychopath, but you should become a Nelson Mandela, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, all of these, all of these incredible people, and you should develop some of these traits. So how should, how do you believe people should live on this spectrum? Do you think that people should move a little bit more towards psychopathy or should they stay in sort of the, let's say naive realm? Can I tell you what I told my mother? Sure. Yeah. So she's a, a good little Sicilian Catholic girl, Never did anything illegal or immoral in her life, as far as none of us can tell. I'm a very good person. I mean, and something happened in our family to our somebody in our family that was awful. And so, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, eight years ago, uh, I was talking to my mother and I said, Ma, we gotta. I said, You want to kill this person? I said, I know people who can kill this person. She goes, mm-hmm. Jim, what are you talking about? I mean, that's awful. You know, she's like, well, I said, I want you to imagine mm. that what this person has done to you and your family and, and uh, to you know individuals and what they do to other people and the injustice of what they do and how they get away with things over and over again. Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't the world be better without that person in it? She goes, well, yeah, I guess the world would be better. I said, well, imagine right now that you can make that person disappear. And I got her to the point where she was going, yeah, I see what you mean. Now, what is this about? And I said, Ma, we're not going to kill you. <laughs> but I wanted you to imagine. to So your imagination could take you to a dark place so you could understand it. You could understand them a bit more and understand your own reactions more. And in that way, you get temporarily into this. And uh, I'll give you a flip side of this. You know, there's a... Uh, a filmmaker, writer, producer, 
uh, called Eli Roth. Now, do you know Eli Roth? Eli Roth makes these awful kind of slasher films and everything. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, look up Eli Roth. And I got contacted by his agent and he wanted to get tested. He said, everybody who works with him thinks he's a psychopath uh, or he's worried about it. And he's worried about it too, because he doesn't think he is. And so uh, he came uh, came here and I had him tested with the fMRI and with the genetics and, and, and discussing him and everything and did the imaging under different conditions. And it, and it was, you know, when he came back the second time for kind of diagnosis, he came back a month later and they were filming all of this. It turned it into Discovery Channel, had a TV show about this and about this process he went through. And I said, I said, this is uh, something. He, I said, when you see negative imagery, this awful imagery, people mm-hmm. getting slashed and cut and their heads chopped off, you become a temporary psychopath. Your brain looks like a psychopath. Wow. And that's probably what the people... The assistant, you know, the assistant director, the all these people who work with you on this film, he says he gets temporarily, he's like a madman, not a madman, but a psychopath. I said, well, you are temporarily there. And I said, I think you're self-medicating with these films. And, you know, after we had did, did the reveal, uh, you know, for the diagnosis, but also for the TV shoot, I went back to my house here, just in the other room. He goes, I need a beer. He goes, I don't drink, but I need a beer. <laughs> and, he here and he called up his father and it turns out his father uh, is a psychiatrist. And he goes, dad, you were right all along. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he showed me a picture of him at his bar mitzvah and he had fangs with blood coming out. And he had all these. So he's always, you know, even when he was very young into this violent, really crazy imagery. And, uh, and it was a way for him, I guess, you know, and he agrees with this and his father definitely does of him to process these feelings and these urges without actually doing them to be play acting in it. And that way he can better understand his own fears and his drives and recognize it in other people. So, yeah, I mean, there's two examples ends of why that would be uh, useful to do. Well, think about it, right? Most people, what they do is they experience, I experience these very often or not very often, but I experience them. The, yeah, these primal desires, these, these negative desires of evil things to do. Most people repress them. Right. Most people say, okay, you know what? Like, I'm just not going to put them into my consciousness and I'm going to pretend like that didn't even exist. But isn't, yeah. So, would you sort of argue against that? Right. Uh, Jordan Peterson, he recommends doing that first exercise all the time. He recommends that people imagine that they were, they were a German in, you know, the 1930s and they were getting recruited. And imagine because likely you would have done that being a Nazi soldier. Yeah, you want to create the situation that that person who did awful things and, and who voted for this to uh, get yourself to the point where you're agreeing with what happened, almost agreeing, get yourself wow. to that point. And that's part of the idea is you get to the point and you have now you say, I see their side of it. But and then you're going to say, but it was still absolutely the wrong thing to do. But at least you're getting approaching what is going on with their feelings with it. I had to do, you know, I do that naturally because, you know, when I got analyzed, all, all my thoughts and every urges every day are completely psychopathic. And I mentioned to you, I didn't even know. It. Um, but the other thing, what I learned is how to control it is to do the same thing you're talking about, but in the opposite ways. Because for me, I was doing psychopathic things to people. 
and, uh, and not killing or raping or stealing anything like that, but just really making them unhappy by through manipulation. Manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so what I decided to do is every day I spent some time watching people my age and in my position. So guys that had kids, grandkids and see how they interacted with everybody when nobody was watching. So their honest interaction. And I saw that people were much more were sacrificing themselves anonymously without anybody looking that I would ever do. And I said, so I watched those behaviors and then tried to duplicate them every day. So I started with my wife and I'd wake up and every time I did something with her, I would have to think, what would a good guy do in this situation? Well, a good guy would pour the wine for her. The good guy would get her plate done. The good guy would clean up very simple things that good, you know, this is good, uh, roommates would do that yeah. I wasn't doing, but all the way to, you know, when, you know, when somebody in her family dies, instead of going to the funeral, say you don't feel well. And then when everybody goes, you go down to the beach and hang out at a bar and get ripped and dance on the tables and stuff. That's what I would do. So all through the day, every day, I would say this to myself, just like what you're saying with the, you know, think, imagining a psychopath, I would imagine a, what a good person would do. And I would follow that. And uh, and after about two months, my wife noticed it. She goes, what's him come over you? You just say, well, I said, what are you talking about? He says, you're such a good guy. You know, like you're like you were when you were young. And, you know, <laughs> and I said, I, I said, don't take it seriously. It's just an experiment. And uh, then I did it with other people. I know friends and people in my family, my siblings, and, and then people at work. And they all noticed it after a while. And I told them it's just an experiment. But I learned that I had to do it every day. Just like in a you in an addiction, yeah. now, January first every year, all these people take New Year's resolutions, and by January fourteenth, they're back doing the exact same thing, worse than they were. But because you, you have to do it, you have to treat it like an addiction, which is every day say, "What would a good guy do? What could?" And and that seemed to work. So I still have to do it. I have to treat my bad behavior as if it was an addiction that I have to be very conscious of, and to use that upper part of my cognitive brain to suppress the urges. So okay. I had to create that, reinforce that part of my brain. So that's another way of looking at, at this. You know, when I asked priests and some rabbis, even an imam, uh, I said, when people give confessions, right, and this would be true for uh, Catholics in a confessional, but also uh, every, every faith has a different way of confessing sins to their God or through some intermediary. Uh, or with some intermediary. And, and I said, do they always have new sins? They go, no, they're the same bad things all the time. And, you know, so to me, it's these people would rather call them sins because they could be absolved of sins. You can't be absolved of psychopathy. It never goes away. And, and so like addiction, you really, you're always an alcoholic or you know, a nicotine addict or something. But 5% people can escape it, but they have to think about it all the time all the time. Don't do that thing for the following reasons. And then it becomes a behavior. I found it exhausting. I started sleeping hours longer each day. I went from four hours of sleep a night to up to seven hours of sleep because it was so exhausting being a good guy. Wow. So are you sort of saying that it changed you internally or did it sort of just change your behavior? It didn't change me internally. I, cause I would, if I don't do it, I go right back to the old game. Wow. Oh, so it's I, it's I'm changing the behavior, but I'm not changing internally because all those connections are made. The, those those connections have been myelinated. The business about the brain being plastic is an old 
know, French humanist uh, enlightenment idea that, you know, genes don't matter. And it's all the environment, it's society, that church that matters, your parents, that determines behavior. It's a bunch, it's so overstated because it's an old romantic notion that, you know, we're all good inside. And we're not all good inside. Uh, and you can overcome these things by just be, behavioral modification. You can, but you got to keep after it every day. And so that's an exhausting thing. And people tend not to be able to do it. Uh, I don't know if I would have been able to do it earlier in my life. You know, now that I'm really older, it's like, what the hell? It's another experiment. You know, it's, what, 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 you know what, what is it inhibiting? So it's just another game in that sense. But I have to play that game with myself to stop those bad behaviors. Makes sense. And then one final question, and this is something that, or at least one final topic that's been on my mind. Why are psychopaths so internally successful as well as externally successful? So I noticed that, you know, you worked at as a professor for 35 years, right? So what is it that sort of allows for psychopaths in general to have such a strong work ethic and to be so successful sort of internally? My, my first uh, science experiment at college, it was in 1968. So I, and then I went right into, I went to Rutzler Polytechnic Institute after college and then on and been, so I, I've actually been doing experiments, scientific experiments in 68, 78, 88, 98, 08, 18, 53, 52 years. Wow. And, and, you know, uh, psychopaths usually don't stay with jobs like that, right? And they don't, you know, my first date was with a 12-year-old. And well, we were both 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's in the other room. She's still my girlfriend, you know. And this is very odd for somebody who's a real psychopath. And in fact, I'm not a clinical psychopath. I do, but I'm very close. I have enough traits, but I can control it usually. But I have to think about controlling it. And But there's no conflict in me. I, there's, you know, it's been, it's wonderful. I really like myself, even though I've done things that have hurt people. I, you know, I, there isn't that conflict. So you say what the internal feeling is, is the internal feeling is I have the greatest time. I said, what a great life this is. And, and so uh, it's not that I'm proud of the things that I've done. There, there's just, these are the good things are gifts, you know, I, you know, <laughs> genetically for better or worse, some are, some of my genes are not so great. But, but they've really helped me in every way. It's just how you look at them. It's how you look at these uh, faults and these genetic abnormalities, but also especially uh, the family I grew up in. I was, you know, in that sense, even though my genes are really funky, uh, my fa whole family, extended family is very supportive and loving. And, and of course, I owe that to them, not to myself. But it's not like, oh, you know, I feel bad about myself. And most psychopaths don't. They feel great about themselves. And uh, and are happy. So we like to think that many psychopaths are unhappy, and, and it's just it's not true. Uh, even though it's inconvenient, especially when they get caught, you know. And, and yeah. so, so I'm not speaking for the full blown. Uh, the very few of the full blown psychopaths uh, that do awful things. You, you never, you don't want to be anywhere near these people ever, ever. And a lot of them are unhappy. Uh, but the people with the traits, which is most people you run into, are would be borderline, you know, maybe with these personality disorders, especially psychopathy, narcissistic personality disorder, you kind of, it's really obnoxious. Um, histrionic is obnoxious. Uh, hedonistic, you know, they're all, a lot of them are, but with the psychopathy, there are these traits that people do like, and, and that are rewarding. And, and since psych, psychopaths, if they keep out of trouble, 
that is criminal trouble can be very happy and very happy with themselves. So, uh, you know, I would reject the notion of internal unhappiness among psychopaths, at least the ones that are not full blown, you know, yeah. yeah. And then also just the fact that, you know, like your what cousin was Ezra Cornell, right? Like, why is it that, and I'm assuming because he founded Cornell, that he was a very, very hardworking, successful person. So why is it that like there's you and him, these hardworking, successful people? Do you think that your psychopathy or your warrior gene, as you would say, contributes to your work ethic? Oh, sure. I think by, you know, that my uh, the level of narcissism, that I have to do well. I know there's no others. I have to do well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I have to win everything. I mean, these are obnoxious traits, but they've certainly helped me succeed. Uh, and they help to people like Ezra Cornell. But there are, you know, on the other part in our family, since we have all these murders in our family, I mean, it's just quite amazing how many bad actors. We have an equal number of very holy people uh, who did <laughs> all those great works who are nuns and priests and ministers who were, you know, great patriots. Our family goes back to, you know, the, the, the 1750s, 1740s in the United States. And uh, you got all these people, eight, eight different direct grandfathers and grandmothers on the Mayflower. These are people from the beginning that were willing to take chances, right? Yeah. Based on principle and to save their asses too. And so, and we've got so many lines on my father's side from the Mayflower and from these people who uh, have fought in the, you know, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the, all these wars. So we got a lot of, um, uh, it, you know, my father and his his three brothers all and my uncles all f- fought in World War II. Uh, and they were not murderers at all. So there all these people were fairly heroic and also very almost holy people. So. But it's, I guess it's not surprising because you get all these evil people and holy people in the same family. Well, what is the system we're talking about? The orbital cortex and the amygdala. And they're tied together like two peas in a pod. They're as thick as thieves. And if wow. one dominates, you be, you're, you know, you, you, you're kind of a holy person. And if the other one wins this tug of war, you're, you're, you're not a very good person. You're bad, badass and not in a good way, badass in a good way. Um, and so... In the same family, we have these very strong, positive, almost spiritual, holy traits. In the same family, it's the opposite. Really badass. Wow. So you know what that reminds me of? So I don't know if you ever read Harry Potter. Um, No. But in Harry Potter, this is something that really, really blows my mind. And you just tell me if this resonates at all. But the thing about Harry Potter is that there's Harry Potter, who's the ultimate good. And then there's Voldemort, who's the ultimate bad. Right. Very simply. Voldemort's very similar to like Hitler, psychopath, right? Feels no emotion. And Harry Potter's the nun Ezra Cornell type of person. The big realization that Harry realizes, I think around fourth book, sorry for the spoilers, is that he has the potential to be Voldemort. Him and Voldemort are almost the same. Their wand is made of the same, you know, whatever, and, and all of these things. And Oh, tell me if that just tell me if that resonates with you, right? Like, wow. The question of whether you have the energy, the drive, the will to win, the will to dominate, uh, and you can use that for very good things or very bad things. But that package that you're, you know, that you're handed can be used in either way. And you know, to people like that, they think everybody else is asleep. 
It's not that yeah. they're going to care. They don't do anything. You know, they just are asleep. So then explain to me then why is, okay, and this is a little bit deeper, but why would Harry Potter be the most popular children's book of all time? Right? Like, are we all psychopaths? Good and evil have always been attractive to children all the way up to a 102 year old mother. Like I have, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. You're, you know, you're interested in, you're scared of it. It's very scary. Mm. And, And one of the things is, you know, the, that you know, one of the research projects that uh, that my group is, is is working on is the genetics and different brain structures through human evolution or hominid evolution. So right now we're you know we're looking at the soprano skull, which is uh, uh, four hundred fifty thousand years old, is one of the key missing links to our to Homo sapien. We look at Neolithic's, Upper Paleolithic's, Lower Paleolithic's, modern man. So we compare the genetics to if we can get the genes. Of, of these whole line and try to, you know, impute to try to guess what their lives are about and what, what changes, what dramatic changes occur. When did hominids, when did human-like uh, animals, when did they first realize that there's infinity, right? Mm. And so you say, well, you know, the prefrontal cortex has a catechol methyl transformation as BDNF in the temporal lobe. And you have different alleles and one codes for long memory and long spatial understanding. So the first person, the first person, you know, the first hominid, uh, hominid group sitting there uh, has this one mutation, this what's called the metval, methionine uh, valine uh, uh, mutation that sticks. And this changes the length of time you perceive things and the distance. Well, how does that distance correlate with drone warfare, spear tools for killing? And how does that kill that distance killing that distance knowledge, but also that one understanding that time keeps going on and on because they can't see the end of time. Well, that moment is the moment when you have warfare, that's really dangerous. The killing becomes dangerous, but also you start to become spiritual because you don't understand how this time can be infinite. So what do you have to, you have to develop a religion. You have to have a means of dealing with this because it's scary, this realization. And this is, you know, you're in the garden of good and evil here. And, uh, and once we entered that garden, you know, if you look at the metaphor of the garden uh, in the tree of knowledge, well, to me, you know, to a biologist or a neuroscientist can say the tree of knowledge is the COMT, uh, in a couple of other mutations, when all of a sudden time stretched to infinity and we realized that we were infinite and and it's scary. So how do we deal with it? And so that leads to both good and evil. So we have a heaven and a hell, very good. We have very bad. Uh, We have, we can kill better, but we have deeper sense of our emotions. And so these go hand in hand and, and we have areas of the brain that fight each other for dominance in your who you are. And that's the amygdala and the ventromedial orbital cortex. And in so in that, there's always that conflict there. And so you're either in the game or you're not in the game. So if you, you know, so in all good and evil, those stories where there's this great powerful young person discovering that they have this, this power uh, and, and, but it's also they're tempted toward the evil well, this is the story about this is midnight in the garden of good and evil. It's the creation story. And it's, and so it's a natural thing that once you start getting more and more insight, you get, you become scared 
And you have to develop mechanisms of, you know, religion and all sorts of things. And you want to get close to the dark side, too. At the same time, you're embracing this positive, uh, soul-saving side. And they go hand in hand. Wow. So, I mean, when you say dark side, right, it's the same idea in Star Wars, right? Luke realizes, you know, I am your father. He realizes that 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 gene of evil lies within him. And that's crazy because you think about it and, you know, what are they really thinking? And this is supporting your point. They're really thinking Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker at the same time. They're thinking, I have potential. I can see infinity. I can see into the future. And one of my potential futures is being Darth Vader. One of my potential futures is being Voldemort. And wow. Wow. So that is, um, that is essentially right. Being in the game, being in the game is you have to choose. Is realizing that you have the power to do that, to go either way. Many people do not have the the enough gifts, if you will. I mean, or curses, (laughs) curses (laughs) to have the intellectual capacity, the energy, the non-ending energy to do this. You say, you know, I could be that, and they said, no, you can't. You can't stay up seven days in a row and perform on the seventh day like you did in the first. No, you don't have that. You can't keep going on year after year. You don't have the memory for this. You don't have the toughness for it. You don't have the resilience emotionally. So there's not a lot of people that can do this stuff. But once you realize you can do it, this becomes the great moral compromise or choice that that some people have. And these make for classic stories. Wow. Because that's one of the things that I noticed. So as I started, you know, deviating from the path, right, the cultural path of school and being an accountant and doing the jobs that I'm supposed to do into, yes, creating a podcast, thinking for myself and coming up with new ideas, I realized that, yes, yes, like there are so many different paths that I can choose. And some of those paths, you know, like the more conscious I get, the more I think for myself, the more I realize, oh, wow, I can manipulate, you know, now that I understand the brain a little bit more, I can manipulate that person. I could do it so easily. And I could, you know, I don't think I could get away with it, but I could potentially get away with it, you know? And then there's also, I could use this knowledge and all the things that I have for good. And that's, that's yeah, relevant just to support what you're saying. I mean, for years, I really enjoyed without saying it to myself, I really enjoyed being dominant and being having all these leadership roles, but also yep. manipulating people. And then when I realized this, when I the real gift that I got was realizing it from this crazy discovery, right from my PET scans at one day, and then which took me on a journey, um, you know, just as I was retiring. It's pretty funny, <laughs> justice. But then I found out that saying to yourself that you can choose to do as many good things as you can, that was much more freeing than any of the other stuff, certainly. Yep, yep. So one final question, and I'm sorry, that's one more final question, is you were chosen for this path, right? You kind of didn't choose this path. It, it kind of chose you. So, you know, just the fact that, yes, the PET scans and, you know, the fact that you were just sort of genetically built like this. So how do you sort of feel about that? The fact that sort of you were chosen for this path rather than you choosing it? Well, all the things came together. I do have science, you know, uh, colleagues, professors who say, this is God talking to you. And I say, you're full of shit. I said, this (laughs) just happened. It's serendipity. And I went with it. You know, it was like just another game for me, except the game was about me. It was about beating myself. Mm-hmm. I was the joke. And so, and I enjoyed that. So, um, and, and so I don't feel, you know, I was chosen, but all the, when it showed up, 
it's like, what an adventure this is going to be now. So I think I did it. It was still for fun. I think it's still for fun. And so it's less, I wouldn't say I you know, chose it as much. I did choose to uh, dig into this and to really delve into it, knowing that in, in, in telling my wife and my kids and her family that this could be a rough ride because it's, you know, it's weird and it's, you know, yeah, really want grandpa to be known as my grandfather's a psycho, <laughs> you know, and so they're all quite brave about it. And so I, so I did that and they said, look, you're a teacher, you're, you know, you should be doing this, tell telling people. And so I, I agreed with them. So I didn't do it without thinking about it and without talking to my wife, you always talk to your wife, Nick, you get in a situation, you got always say, you got to come clean with your wife or, you know, be your loved ones. Noted. Um, and uh, yeah. And so, uh, so in that way, I, I was afforded the opportunity and I then, after some consultation and thought, went for it. In that case, I chose it. So it was of my own free will, even though people around me saying, no, this is fate has driven you to this. Interesting. It's, so it makes it more romantic, right? It's a more romantic motion. <laughs> so romantic. It's like, you know, and, and a lot of things have happened in my life. This same. See, God is trying to tell you, you're, you're an agnostic. And this is God trying to tell you that he exists or he shakes it. <laughs> Uh, but I don't take it seriously. It's I think it's part of the fun. I I, I take l- people's lives seriously and, and living seriously, but a lot of uh, you know one's life could be just goofy fun, which certainly mine has been. So you're 74 years old. What do the next five years look like for you? A uh, gas, uh, probably a lot of gas. Uh, probably uh, losing my hair. See, I still have my hair. You notice that? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's genetic. That's my, that's hair. And I, you know, and I'm still able to grow an okay beard, but you know, the wheels are coming off and I can't do other things. It's just, it's a matter of the next five years of accepting things as they fall apart uh, physically. And (laughs) I've been asked to write two more books, which I may or may not do. And, uh, but I'm involved and still very involved in research in neuroscience research and evolutionary research. And in, um, and involved in film and TV and trying to help them to make better, good, truer stories and, and have a couple of companies, a genetic editing company for relieving stress, anxiety and everything wow. um, with CRISPR type technologies. So I have some companies that are, uh, are directed at human suffering, you know, it's just PTSD, et cetera depression and schizophrenia. So I could continue to do that, but without having a lab. So you have to have younger people with good hands to work in the lab. So I gave up my lab when my hands weren't so good anymore. And I, uh, and, and so was able to move on, but continue to do it, which is why being an academic and something like neuroscience is so rewarding because it, it never has to stop. I love that. Still be in, in that game too, at the same time as the, the, the life game. Well, Dr. Fallon, thank you for this incredible conversation. I really appreciate it. Hey, Nick, great questions. You really came prepared, or maybe you're just naturally really smart. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll talk to you again sometime, Nick. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Nick Lugo Show with Dr. Jim Fallon. To support this podcast, make sure to give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or to subscribe to my YouTube channel. These things help more than you know. And to end off this, I will give you a quote by Mark Twain. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again. Take care.